0: Last week, our Harvest Sunday, in which we talked about a lot of good things that are happening here in Collin County, but also overseas in particular with our work now in El Salvador. And we shared with this body of believers an opportunity uh, to open up a new center right in the center of El Salvador that we've been wanting to plant a church in for years and God's provided us a, a couple to come and begin this work, but also to have a center for us to do medical missions out of and do some of our training as well. And, and also to kind of unite uh, the churches that are on the east side with those that are on the west side, to where they can come together and meet as brothers and sisters. And it was an expensive proposition, but we challenged the congregation uh, to raise in one Sunday uh, 75,000, and Paul just gave me a note that we're over 80,000. So thank you very much, Lord, and thank you for your generosity. In 2015, Stephen Colbert uh, delivered a commencement speech at Wake Forest University, and and this was the message that he gave to graduates. He said, "I want you to find the courage to decide for yourself what is right." and what is wrong, and then make the world a good according to your standards. So his relativistic view that he was giving to the graduates and to those that subscribe to it, basically says you get to do what you want. You get to decide what's right and what's wrong for you, what moral code you'll live by, what, what standards you will put in place. But what's most important is you just go out and do good and be a good person. Is that what we believe? See, we live in a nation that was formed on Judeo-Christian principles. And in back at its founding, not everyone subscribed to be a believer. But there was a a common, I I guess, conviction and and a common understanding that we would build the country based on this, and that our laws and how we would interact would have an ethic that that kind of served as foundation for that. And now we find ourselves in a world where we're trying to define and accommodate a society for which there are no standards. Everyone gets to determine what truth is for them. And how is that working out for us? But as believers, we believe that our lives are grounded on something beyond our feelings and and beyond what works for us. And we believe that that God has given us some truths. And God has given us a a pathway. And God has given us a foundation for us to build our lives upon. And so we're starting a new sermon series. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to look at some non-negotiable truths of the Christian faith. These are our convictions as believers that we not only hold true... and and hold in, in commonality as a community, these are things that we put into practice in our lives, or we should. These are convictions that define who we are and how we're gonna operate as a church family. And so fortunately, we have a word from the Lord The Bible, the Word of God that provides a firm footing for us. And we believe that the Bible, though it was written over the span of generations, that took hundreds and hundreds of years by people from vastly different societies and different backgrounds and cultures, yet is brought together by the power of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of God to form one cohesive message, a grand story, A meta-narrative of God's love for his people. So what is so important about the Bible? What is so impressive? Why is it so important that we say this is how we're going to do life? Why do we hold this above other pieces of literature? Well, we contend that the things contained in scriptures have eternally altered our lives In the lives of millions of other folks because we believe as believers it's the very word of god it's the very word of god in our series on the book of hebrews i kindly i kind of glanced over a passage knowing that i would hit it more deeply as we got into this series If you have your Bibles, you can turn to me to Hebrews chapter 4. And and I want us to look at three of the most important features that separate scriptures from all of literature. And the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and and is active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow. It is able to judge the desires and, and the thoughts of the heart. and no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him, to whom we must render an account. That's what's important about Scripture. And so there, there's three truths that we need to understand about why we hold this book in such reference. And, and the first is this: the Word of God is dynamic. It's continuing. It is alive. It says the word of God is living. So it's dynamic. It's not static. And it possesses an animating feature that no other book possesses. Why? Well, because the Bible is an immediate extension of God himself. There's a connection there. When we read about put on the full armor of the Lord... uh, this is the sword of the Spirit. It is an instrument. It is connected to the hand of the warrior. There's no separation there. And so while Scripture is not God, it is a tool of God, and is a immediate extension of God and his work. When Stephen was preaching his glorious sermon in Acts chapter 7, given his defense before he became the first Christian martyr, What did Stephen say about Scripture? He he pointed back to the time of Moses. when, When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he says that Moses received the living words of our Heavenly Father. The living words of God have passed on to us. So it is the word of God that continues growing and it continues being relevant for each and every generation because it's connected to God and it is alive. Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23, for you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the enduring word of God. Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, all scripture is what? God breathed. So God is up to something. God not only got this thing going, but it is a living document. It continues to speak into our lives, though written thousands of years ago. So God's word is dynamic. You know, we gather together to to read and to spend time in God's Word, we do it as people whose bodies are perishing that we may find life in his pages, in his teachings, because it's living. And so the Spirit of God continues to show us new meaning and timeless truths. How many of you in your studies have read through books over and over again, and then uh, you see it, you're I never saw that. Why has this nugget never been mined out? Why am I just now seeing this? Because the ongoing work of the Spirit continues to use Scripture to bring about a new truth into our lives. But our hearts have to be open to receive it if we're going to continue changing and growing in our faith. So the Word of God possesses a vitality because it's interconnected to God's very own nature. That's what's important about Scripture. So God's Word is dynamic, but also we see from this passage that God's Word is effective. God's Word is effective. What's it effective in doing? Well, it's effective in doing what God wants it to do. God has a desire for what He intends Scripture to do and what He intends His words to bring about. And if He speaks it, it happens. So God's word is effective in doing these things. David tells us and kind of gives us a snapshot of creation. And he's got to tell us, and whether he's speaking in metaphor, I don't know. But here's how he describes creation in Psalms 33 and verse 6. He said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the stars, and and that came from the breath of his mouth. God sees it in his mind and speaks it into existence. That's how powerful the very words of God are. God speaks and it happens. So God's work completes what he desires. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, he gives us this understanding. He said, for just as the rain and the snow fall from heaven... And, and they go through the whole process you learned in science. They don't return without watering the earth, making it bud and sprout and providing the seed to sow and food to eat. So my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper where I send it. God's like, um there's no emptiness in the words that I throw out there. And I expect these things to take place when I say them. And so when words come out of my mouth and words are recorded in scripture, they're intended to have a purpose and there's power in there that you don't understand. In the years leading up to the Protestant Reformation Movement, the church had kind of lost sight of its mission also kind of lost sight of his message, the gospel. That God loved us so much they sent his one and only son to die for us that we may be reconciled through him. They kind of lost their way. And a, a lot of things that were put in place for good intentions had kind of left the church boy, heading in the wrong direction. And so what happened? The Protestant Reformation Movement And so there were many things that brought this about, but there was a watershed moment that kind of came to fruition when a lone Augustinian monk stood up before a, a court of civil and religious authorities to make his case as to why we need to get back to Scripture and get rid of everything else. He said, my conscience is bound to the Word of God, nothing else. He said, church, we've got to get away from all of the things we see in society and all of the ways that the church has gone astray. Let's just get back to Scripture. At the very end of his life, looking back on how Germany had changed, and the reformation that had come about from people dusting off their Bibles and getting back to it, Here's what Luther said about the part that he played in it. He said, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amstor, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. The person that kicked off the Protestant Reformation movement says, I was over here drinking beer and sleeping. All this happened. It wasn't of me, stop looking at me. It was what happened because we got back to listening to what God had to say for our lives. That's what reformed the churches and reformed the hearts of believers. So God's Word is active, and it is effective in accomplishing what God wants it to do. That's why we have to treat it as a source for our life. The power is accessible to us as well. We need to realize that when we find ourselves in difficult situations, we find ourselves in tempting opportunities, we find ourselves struggling in various relationships, we have the access to God's word. So we can, in those moments, if we've vested time in God's work, speak scripture into that. It's not of us, it's God's word coming forward, and it carries the same power. And that power is not of us, it is power that belongs to God because it's an extension of Him. We see this in the temptations of Jesus three very tempting offers of Satan as Jesus just starting his earthly ministry. All three times he undercuts the arguments of Satan with scripture. That's the same power we have access to because God's word is powerful and it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. So God's word is active and it is effective. And finally, the word of God is penetrating we don't like this sometimes when scripture cuts to the bone do we for the word of god is living and active sharper than in any double-edged sword piercing even to the point of dividing soul from spirit and joints from marrow see in the ancient world uh they mainly had the single-edged swords. You see the Roman soldiers. Um, they had a very thick um, sword that you could actually chop wood with by, by hitting a stone or something on top of it to split wood. All, most of the swords were single-edged, and that's what the common soldier. But true swordsmen would had the double edge. And it was something that was definitely the sharpest weapon available in every arsenal. And its only purpose was to cut and to kill. But God's word, it says, was even sharper and more incisive. So there's no part of our being that can escape God's word if we listen to it. The things that we can kind of store below the waterline, right? Our emotions. Our struggles. Right? Our, Our feelings. Some of these things that, that tend to do battle for us that we hold in check. Um, this has a way of getting below the waterline and addressing these and cutting right through, cutting to the chase and getting to where God can show us this is exactly where you need to step forward. This is exactly where you need to step into because it, it lays bare before God all the things going in our life. It says, and no creature is hidden from God. But everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must render an account. All of is flayed wide open. And God says, I I see it. Stop covering. I, I, I know what's happening here. So scripture provides the vehicle through which we can see sin for ourselves, And we can see the areas that need addressed. James would would later say it's like a giant mirror. that We're like, "Oh, oh, okay. And so that's what God's spirit through scripture can do for us in our lives. If we're willing to listen. If we're willing to be vulnerable before God. Psalms 44 says, God knows the secrets of our heart. You know, when we break from this place, go to our homes or go to a restaurant to eat some lunch, the most common question is, how did you enjoy worship? How would it go today? What were your thoughts? About 300 years ago, the Puritans, our forefathers, would walk out of worship, and here's what they would say. How did you fare under the preaching of the Word of God this morning? Oh boy, I got one over here. Ooh, oh, That's a different perspective of coming into worship, not saying, I, I, "I've got my thumb up or thumbs down. How's it going to be? Is it a good song service?" or boy, brab us off. Yeah, boy. No, it's laying ourselves open, saying, "God's going to be painful, but I need you to do some surgery." And I know your word is active and it's effective and it is penetrating. And Lord, I want to be right with you and in right keeping. I want to reflect more of your Son, Jesus. Lord, show me, cut that sin out of my life. Help me grow in my knowledge so I can more faithfully live into that. You know, the Bible is not a textbook. Uh, filled with facts and figures and history. That's not to say it's not historical. That's not to say that there are are things that that we need to know from that. It's also not a self-help book with useful tips on, on life. It can't be reduced to chicken soup for the soul. There's nothing wrong with that. But that was not the intended purpose. It's a grand story about God's love for his people. And he's saying... I am going to step out first. I'm going to save you and reconcile. Now here's what it means to be in right relationship with me. Here's what a covenant life looks like. When I was baptized, my youth minister, Bill Hunter, gave me uh, my first Bible that was just mine. And he wrote on the inside of the cover. He said, this book will keep you from a life of sin. But a life of sin will keep you from this book. At the time, I didn't quite understand what that meant. But Now, after many years, I understand that. That God has a a way and he has a, a code and he has a journey that he wants us to walk. And scripture enlightens that path. It's the road less traveled, and sometimes it's difficult to walk on that road, but Scripture keeps reminding me and serves as, as almost guardrails to keep, keep me going on that trail when I want to be on that trail. Here's what I also know, that when I'm willfully stepping off that pathway, when I'm willfully stepping away from God's plan for my life, The last thing I want to do is read Scripture to remind me that I've stepped outside of God's will. I know it, but I don't want to be reminded of that. So check that sometimes. If you're struggling to spend time in God's Word, it it may not be a a time thing. It's, I don't want to be reminded that I'm really not living into the life God called me to do. Into the life God called us to live. You know, Acts chapter uh, 17 we, we see that it's important that we study Scripture. And, and here's our first application that we need to understand from this, that the Bible should be the standard by which we judge all claims of truth. So we need to realize that not only do we study it, but it becomes this foundation for, for how we make a decision on, on how to go forward as a church, but also how we go forward in each of our individual lives. And so whether it's... Religious settings or social settings, this is how we do things. We say scripture is going to determine how we're going to go move forward. If that's true, each of us needs to be students of the word. So in Acts chapter 17, we, we got Paul and he's going in and he's sharing different things and he's teaching from scripture and they're having to go back and fact check Paul. He says, now the Berean Jews were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica for they received the message with great eagerness. And then they went home and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So, church, I won't be offended. If Paul had to be fact-checked, please go and double-check me as well. I give you permission. I won't be defensive. Drop by my office, send me an email. Let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. Well, what I want us to do is not look at what I have to say or what you have to say. Let's see what Scripture has to say. Let's argue with what we are given in Scripture, all of Scripture, not just picking and choosing here or there to put something together that makes sense for us. No, let's see what God intended through the grand story. Let's have that conversation. So, because we believe that God continues to reveal truth in our life, truth that we can live into. Acts chapter eighteen tells us about a rising star in the church named Apollos. It said Apollos was an incredible evangelist. It said he was well learned in knowledge of scriptures. Only problem is he only knew the baptism of John. And John's baptism was, hey, repent, do a 180, and come and get forgiveness. Anyone want to do that? Yeah, let's go. And so they went down and they were baptized. And so they felt better. And so it opened them up to receive Jesus' teaching. Well, then there was another baptism that came later. What was that? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just forgiveness, it's Let's give you the power of God to live in you, to guide you, to live differently, to become sanctified, set apart, and grow into becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, Paul is up there preaching, some of you guys need to repent, and and you'll be baptized. Well, Priscilla and her husband Aquila are on the pews going, okay, this guy's good, He's not telling about the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the rest of the story. He's not talking about what Jesus did and how Jesus says, I go back, I'm going to give you my spirit to indwell in you. It's going to be better to have the spirit in you than me right next to you. So they pull him aside and Apollos is like, hey, what's up? Well, we love your sermons. Boy, you're talented. God's going to use you. We appreciate all the time you spent in Scripture. Are you aware of this? No, I had no idea. Well, This is the further part of the truth. And Apollos says, well, that's just how I was raised. That's how I was taught, and that's how I'm going to keep. No, he he, he says, I'm going to start preaching this way. I had no idea. Acts chapter 10, Peter gets firsthand account of God's will to include the Gentiles. He didn't want to include the Gentiles. He's up there taking a nap, sees the whole thing, come down with all the animals, the sheet in there. And he's like, get up and eat. And no, no, there's like pigs and snakes. I can't eat any of that. It's unclean. It goes up, comes down again. Peter, go, go, you're hungry. Go, go eat. Not that, Lord. A third time. And God says, I get determined what is clean and what's unclean. And I'm telling you, I know you were raised this way. I know you understand this. I'm telling you that I'm opening up the saving message of Jesus to all people. Knock at the door. There's a guy named Cornelius. I want you to come up and preach to him. Cornelius, that's not a Jewish name. No, he's a Roman. Lord, are these connected? Yeah. Go. And so he walks in. He says, I'm here. Why did you call me? I don't know. God told me to call you. So they're kind of, okay, let me tell you about Jesus. Immediately, Cornelius' whole household are baptized. And he was like, praise the Lord. He starts telling me, apparently God wants the Gentiles to be Christians too. Fantastic. Paul goes back and tells some folks there, but then he goes on to Antioch. This little frontier church, a lot of Gentiles. He starts hanging out with them, telling them about the good news of Jesus. Well, there were some Jews that came. James sent them out, the brother of Jesus, from Jerusalem to go check out what's happening in Antioch. The only problem is these guys that came to be a part of the church in Antioch believed that everyone should be circumcised, believed that they had to go through and become a Jew before they could become a Christian. And so Peter's faced with a dilemma. Lord, you've shown me a truth but if I go forward with this truth, it's going to be disruptive to this little church on the prairie. And, and for the sake of unity, Lord, I, I'm not going to tell this truth that I know to be true because it's just too disruptive for the folks in the pews. So he starts telling them about circumcision, he even starts pulling away from the Gentile converts just for the sake of unity with his Jewish brothers who believe something different. Paul says, that's not right. I don't care if you think this is helping for unity's sake. It's not right. If something's right, you do it. You step forward and you do it. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. He is the reason. He's the only thing we're going to talk about, not the law. The law causes you to perish. Peter had the opportunity to teach the truth, and he chose not to. And yet, Paul says, we've got to move forward with this. Number two, the Bible should be the guidebook by which we live our lives. Actually do what it says. At the end of Jesus most famous sermon the sermon on the mount and and there are there are a lot of theologians who are like well jesus kind of paints this grand picture of what life could be life and it's supposed to make us feel inadequate as believers uh, so it's kind of the ideal but no one's expected to do these things jesus says no let me wrap up this sermon with a story it's a story about two guys that build houses one guy built his house upon a rock. Those are the people that, that listen to my teachings and put them into practices. They're, they build their house upon a rock, a firm foundation in my teachings. When the rain comes down and the floods come up, the house will remain firm. The other guy, he listened to the teachings. Boy, boy I really enjoy that but I'm going to go build my house down on the beach, down on the sand. I'm not going to put those things into practice. I'll listen. I'll come. I'll enjoy. I'll say, oh, great sermon. Love that. felt inspired, but I'm not going to put that into practice. He said, you're building a house down on the beach, and the storm is coming. The rain is coming down. The floods are coming up, and your house is going to go splat. Japan is no stranger to deadly storms. Tsunamis have devastated the islands from time to time. In particular, two major storms. One was in 1498 and the other in 1792. And it was after the storm in 1792 that the people in Japan got together and they said, It's too important for us to have seen what we've experienced right here on this island and not warn folks about how bad these storms can be. And so they got together and they carved out a bunch of these stones called tsunami storms, uh, tsunami stones, and they put them at they saw where all the destruction had stopped and said okay here's the water line folks aren't going to believe that the water came all the way up to here but let's put a stone here we'll go around the island where did it stop okay right here put another one they went all the way around japan putting these tsunami storms stones up saying this is where the storm got to and here's what the inscription said on it do not build any home below this point High dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the the calamity of the great tsunamis. March 11, 2011, the Tohoku earthquake registered at 9.0 on the Richter scale. 9.0 under the water caused this huge wave of water and it triggered a tsunami in the country's north. It came in and wiped out cities, it wiped out houses, businesses, cars, trains, boats, you name it. It just wholesale took off huge parts of the country. In its wake, over 16,000 people lost their life immediately. 6,000 were injured, 4,000 bodies are never found. They assume were just washed out to sea. Folks, do we realize how important God's word is? God's word serves as the tsunami stone for my life and your life and for your families. To say, guys, this is where the watermark is. This is where God wants us to live above this. And there's danger below here. As for me and my house, this will be the standard for how we do life. This is the conviction that each of us have. The high dwellings are a peace and harmony of those who live in accordance with God's word, and calamity is calling for those who spurn God's word. Can we make a conviction and a decision to live into that conviction that we're going to study God's word? That we're going to memorize God's word? And that we're going to have this as the only standard for how we do church, for how we live our lives, and the moral decisions that we make as believers. This morning, if you'd like to rededicate your life to saying, I've been living down on the beach. I've been putting a tent down there, and the calamity hadn't happened, but it's coming. I want to rededicate my life and say, I'm building my house up here. I'm tired of living down here or tired of going back and forth. Some of you, your life has already, you know, the beach umbrella has been knocked out to sea and you're just trying to pick up pieces because you've walked down onto the coast. Make today the day you say, I'm going to start living differently. I'm going to live into this conviction. And maybe that conviction is following the pattern we see in Scripture of putting your Lord on in baptism, saying, Jesus, I want to be united with you we can help you this morning, come now as we stand and as we sing.